There are very few people that justify only having one name, and you are one of them. Welcome, Jewel. I want to just start off by personally thanking you. Um, on a personal note, I lost a college friend to suicide. I've at one point had to take a family member to a, um, to the ho a hospital. Um, the crisis that we face, this mental health crisis, was only massively exacerbated with COVID. You've taken your fame. You've taken your challenges. You do so much good. If you, we can just start off and share a little bit about the early days of Jewel, your teen years, um, your challenges related to mental health and how you know, you've gone through that, that path, that would be just helpful as background. Sure. I was raised in Alaska. My family were pioneers. They helped settle the state. Um, my mom and dad lived in Anchorage. And when my mom was eight, she left the family and my dad took over raising us. He moved us to Homer, where most of my family is from. And he began trauma triggering. We didn't know those words at the time. I just knew that Behavior changed radically overnight. We went from uh, kind of just a quiet little family unit to my dad drinking and smoking and becoming physically abusive and clearly was very painful. And I grew up bar singing with my dad. So I grew up doing like five-hour sets in fisherman bars and lumberjack joints and basically had a front row seat to a pattern I began to know very well. What I began to see was that I was in pain and I was surrounded in people by, by and large that were also in pain. Um, you know, five hour sets for people that are bar regulars. Um, lots of people dealing with pain in lots of different ways. You know, I had a front row seat to lots of alcohol use and drug abuse and rage and relationships. And I'm a very visual person. And so I just remember being eight and nine and thinking, I think I just learned about oysters in, in class and how they take a piece of sand and they make a pearl. And I was like, oh, my gosh, none of us are making pearls. We're covering this, this cut, you know, this pain, this little piece of sand in other, you know, now what you would call coping mechanisms. I just saw them like layers of trying not to feel this hurt. And you end up having a mountain of pain, of avoidance. And you still had that original pain you had to deal with anyway. You had to dig your way back down there, and very few people ever did. And I remember writing in my notebook, nobody outruns pain. And it made me so curious. Why aren't we taught what to do with pain? We all feel pain, every human. It's, it's hardwired into us. I don't think it's that whatever created us made a mistake. There must be a way that we can handle pain. When did we forget knowing what to do with it? When did and, we forget teaching about it? And in fact, and, if you don't feel pain, it's actually incredibly dangerous. Yeah. There's actually absolutely. people in this world that actually don't feel physical pain and they don't make it past 30 or 40. Absolutely. Um, then I had learned about um, the buffalo. It's the only animal that heads directly into the heart of a storm. 
And that really struck me that the quickest way is through. And so I made myself a promise at nine that I would never drink, I would never do drugs, and I would try to face my pain as it came. And if I couldn't face it or I didn't know what to do, I would, I called it putting a pin in it. Um, I guess you'd now call it compartmentalize. You know, I just found a way to move forward, promising to come back to it someday. And then I moved out at 15. Um, My dad became more abusive and I ended up moving out. And I knew statistically kids like me end up repeating the cycle. That it's a very dangerous thing to do is move out at that age. And so I wanted to do it believing that there might be a different outcome possible for me. And so I thought a lot about it and contemplated a lot and was just really struck by so many thoughts, one of which was, you know, as much as I had a genetic inheritance that might give me a predisposition to like diabetes or heart disease, I was also given an emotional inheritance and that would give me a predisposition to abuse, you know, or addiction or rage or frustration and all of these really negative attributes that were being handed down generationally in my family. And so I needed to learn a new emotional language, but I knew there was no school. I knew you couldn't go learn Spanish. You know, this wasn't like that. And so I thought about nature versus nurture and began to wonder if, you know, was my personality, was my nurture so bad that it affected my nature? You know, would my personality be altered by the type of trauma that I had? That word, I didn't know the word at the time, but so I kind of set up on this ambitious mission to see if happiness was a learnable skill. Was it a teachable skill? Could I learn a new emotional language? What would that take? At 15. Um, Yeah. You know, gave me a lot of hope. (laughs) At 15, you're on a path towards figuring out happiness. I, I have to ask, there must have been some influence in your life that made you at nine and at 15 uh, making those oaths to yourself and that dedication, I mean, was it fully inherent or do you think there were certain experiences that made you make those decisions not to want to live that life when so many other people that are exposed to that kind of a world don't make those decisions? What do you think it was for you? To me, it just seemed really logical. It seemed really practical, you know. Being a little girl in a bar is dangerous. That's you're aware of it. You know, I wasn't ignorant to like what a dangerous environment. I loved it too. Don't get me wrong. I wanted to be singing. But I also knew it's like being on a street, you know, in an inner city, it's kind of dangerous. And so it just, I don't know, for some reason it just made a lot of logical sense to me. You know, it was very obvious that drinking wasn't helping anyone. It was really obvious. And I was seeing brutal lessons. You know, I was seeing people who died, these regulars, and they never had money for a casket. And so we would sing in a parking lot to buy a wooden casket for somebody. You know, I was getting huge, visceral, real lessons of like why this wasn't a great path. Um, And I think it was those things that I, for whatever reason, decided to notice and really pay attention and take seriously. And then maybe it's because I'm a girl, things felt dangerous. You know, I, I wasn't lulled into thinking things Mm. seemed not dangerous. So if I was to be inebriated in public, that would be very dangerous. You know, I was around a lot of people that would take advantage of me. Um, And I wanted to feel safe and I wanted to feel happy. I was so sincere and earnest in that. I always have been my whole life. I don't know why. (laughs) So so tell me about the 16-year-old happiness journey. You started writing, writing some of the songs that you're so famous for today. Tell us about that. Long story short, I ended up in, I went to boarding school. Um, I got a full scholarship. 
started having panic attacks there. I didn't know what they were. Had them so often that I began to be able to get a little bit creative with them and experiment and find things that helped me get out of my panic attacks that were so helpful. Basically, I kind of little, I did a guided meditation for myself that would use color and taste to now what we know about the science. What I had stumbled on was helping my brain deal with color and sight and smell which forces blood back into your frontal lobes. If you Google like imaging of brain during panic attack, you'll see a brain go offline. All the blood drains out of the frontal lobes and it goes into the amygdala and it lights up. Right. And Where all, all the your fear is. Yeah. Yeah. So it's your fight or flight. It causes a different adrenal system and nervous system to kick in. All your excitatory neurochemicals, you know, adrenaline, cortisol, et cetera. Um, but you're not logical. That's why people having a panic attack, it's not a logical thing. But it's literally because there's no blood in your frontal lobes practically. And so what I kind of stumbled on with my meditation, what I noticed made me feel better was I would imagine while I'm in the throes of a panic attack that I was in a boat on a very stormy sea and it was black water and black skies and the smell of lightning in the air and that electrical smell. And then I would let myself fall backwards out of the boat. I liked water, so this image worked for me. And it would get instantly quiet, and then instantly I would taste that salt on my lips, and I would watch the colors change as I drift really peacefully down to the bottom of the ocean, feel the sand on my back. The blues change, the colors change, shafts of light through the beautiful ocean. And by the time I went through this process, I was usually calm. Um, so now what we know about that type of thing, and you can do this for yourself, and you can do anything, but forcing your brain to process information that makes blood go back into your frontal lobes. So sight, color, you know, cognition. A friend of mine, when he has panic attacks, reads. He forces himself to look at the words and understand the words. Same thing. It just starts hacking your brain's blood supply, basically. This is also the age, you know, when I was 16, I started shoplifting really regularly. It was to get myself food and clothing, um, but then went well beyond necessities into just a full-blown addiction. Fast forward, graduate, go to San Diego to take care of a sick mom and um, wouldn't have sex with a boss. My boss fires me. I can't pay my rent. I start living in my car. My car gets stolen and I end up homeless for about a year. And I would say it was during this phase that I developed a huge bulk of the exercises that I still teach to this day, that I, I teach CEOs as well as, you know, at-risk youth because I became very um, aware that behavior drives our lives. Behavior drives it. And you can do therapy or read a good book and have an aha moment. But if you don't know how to practice that and create a habit out of it, it's dead to you. And so I started developing now what I would call behavioral tools um, during that year that I was homeless. And it radically changed my life. One of the things I, I love that I, I read about that you focus on is kind of the concept of rewi rewiring your brain. And, and that just makes so much sense. Um, talk about that a little bit. I would, I would love to hear your perspective on it. The word mindfulness gets thrown around all the time. Um, hard to know what it means. So I have a definition. It just means being consciously present. So meditation helps to build the muscle of being consciously present for longer and longer periods of time. And our society, our world is vying for our attention, or I should say vying for our distraction. What anxiety does, what worry does, is take an, a past and project it onto a future that hasn't happened. 
And so we're distracting ourselves. We're distracting ourselves with a scary story of what we're worried will happen. And it's an attempt to keep ourselves safe. I get it's why a coping mechanism. Yeah. The problem is it's inaccurate. You know, you can't successfully take past data and project it into a future that hasn't happened with great outcome. But it keeps you busy. It keeps you distracted, which is really just a mechanism for helping you cope, right, with kind of the uncertainty of life, which I get. We need ways to cope, especially if you've come from abuse. You know, you, you, the hypervigilance, you know, I get it. I'm the hypervigilance queen. But it isn't that effective. So could I find another strategy that was maybe more effective? And I was reading a lot of philosophy at the time, and Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. I decided it was I perceive what I think, therefore I am. I realized if I could perceive I was sad, I was something other than sad. I was the observer of it, which was interesting. You know, if I could use a car as a metaphor, your body, let's say, is a car. And your brain is not the driver. It's a steering wheel. So who is the driver? It's the observer. And so meditation helps us build the capacity to observe in real time, to be consciously present in real time and observe things as they're happening. This is really important because anxiety is kind of like, or future thinking or hypervigilance, is sort of like leaving your house to keep it safe. It's like leaving your house to go look for robbers might be better to stay in your house. You know, it's probably a better strategy. So meditation is a tool that helps you build the ability to stay in your house presently, consciously for longer and longer periods of time. And that's incredibly calming all on its own. But what I realized was meditation, which was life-changing, didn't get me the level of change I was looking for. And so, again, if I could use the car as an analogy, meditation helped me get off of neurological autopilot, where my brain is pre-programmed according to how I was raised, all the stimulus and my assumptions about all of my upbringing, which may or may not be true. And I have a knee-jerk reaction when something happens. And I confuse that for my personality. Well, it isn't. It's kind of more your programming. Right. How do you break that trigger? You start to break that by using... The muscle, so I look at meditation like a bicep curl. It's going to the gym. It's building the muscle of learning to get present. So when I noticed I'm upset or when you notice you're triggered, that muscle should kick in and it should go, hey, I'm aware. I'm aware I'm inordinately bothered by what this person is saying, as an example. I'm going to stop and I'm not going to engage. Like that is a life-changing skill. Now you're in a position to respond instead of react. So if I could go back to the car analogy, I'm using meditation, I'm getting present, I'm able to get myself off of autopilot, I'm able to now push pause before having a knee-jerk reaction that probably isn't the healthiest. Now I'm going to stop and I'm going to get curious and I'm going to contemplate. So I think mindfulness has two stages personally. There's learning to meditate, learning to become present, and then once you're in position, it's like getting that car out of autopilot and into neutral. Now you're neutral, and that's really important. Now you have to really think and be thoughtful. Where do I want my car to go that's new? And how do I do that? And that's where skill-based tools really come in handy. Because now I'm present. Uh, I notice I'm triggered by so-and-so saying something to me. I want to tell them to F off. I'm pausing. I'm not doing it. Now I can form a thoughtful response. I can think about it. I can calm down. And I can 
have an action that's going to give me a much better outcome. And that's all by showing up. Impulse control. Yeah, meditation definitely teaches impulse control. I continue to need to work on that in life. And the challenge is a lot of times people who are ambitious, who are driven, who are quote unquote very successful, they do shoot by the hip. And some of those impulses are what got them to the place that they're in. And they don't realize the negative consequences of the doing that as well. And um, it, it's it's a great call out. You know, at Mita, one of the things we love to say is we use technology to get people off of technology. And one of the things that you built back in 2016 was the Never Broken platform and helping to build a community for those in need. And we're going to get to the Not Alone Challenge as well and the community that you're building. But can you just talk a little bit more about the power of community for yourself, the power of community for others around mental health challenges, keeping connected is what this podcast is about, not just for a reason, but because we deeply believe in it. And I would love to hear your perspective and any suggestions around it. I think connection cures. I think that if I could make a simple blanket statement, which is never overly helpful, but if I was to try, I would say that what we're suffering suffering from as a society is acute distraction and an inability to connect to self and other well. And that the world is vying for our distraction and we are learning how to advocate for our connection. And so, again, using mindfulness tools, um, walking in nature, connecting to other humans are all tools to help us connect. And it's healing. You know, it's an incredibly healing thing to be able to connect to yourself and to connect to others. One of the things I love that you called out is the importance of first connecting to yourself and making yourself whole prior to looking to help others and build community for others. And I think there are people who are unselfish and that unselfishness sometimes is more of a challenge for them than a positive because it means they haven't figured themselves out enough first. So I guess I'll ask you this question. Where do you feel like you are today in connecting to yourself and how you are? And it's obviously a lifelong journey, but how do you feel you are right now? Because you you continue to evolve in music and, and, and everything that you're doing in life. You know, I think once a person learns that moving toward pain is more rewarding than moving away from pain, your life really begins to change. When you stop making excuses for reasons you can't be happy. They all might be true, by the way. But now what? What do you do about it? What are you willing to do about it? It always starts within. And so if there's one paradigm shift I could encourage anybody to have, it's this idea of beginning to change your life from the inside out, not from the outside in. Um, No matter how much yoga you do or how many times you get in nature, which are such good, you know, habits to have, or no matter how many times you blame something uh, unhealthy in your environment, it won't really take the place of you learning how to engage from the inside out. And so I really believe that, you know, when you can get good at moving toward the uncomfortable feeling, getting curious about the anxiety, asking, why don't I like being alone? Um, why do I have such a visceral reaction to that thought? All that questioning will change your life. You know, one thing that's so apparent about you is just your comfort in being vulnerable. 
I read in in, uh, one of your interviews around Never Broken, you wrote, I really feel that my life has been painful, but many people suffer much worse than I have. And that's what I want people to see in the book about your your best-selling, New York Times best-selling book, Never Broken. An honest look at things that have been difficult for me, which might help others. You're so incredibly comfortable being vulnerable. And we know how important that is in the healing process for people to ask for help in the first place. Has that been a challenge for you? What do you say to people that that's a challenge for? Because it's such an important step in the in the healing process. You know, it's been, um, I'm 48, you know, so I've been doing this a long time. You know, if you met me when I was 18, it would look real different. Um, I think writing forces you to get in touch with really essential parts of your nature. And I think that was a real gift in my life. It gave me a front row seat to very intimate feelings and then the urge to share those or to share that poem or whatever. Um, but that said, you know, you don't move out at 15 because you trust adults. <laughs> um, I was incredibly guarded, very scrappy, very strappy, scrappy street kid. Still, when I get triggered, my go-to is to hit you really hard with some sarcasm and some left-right witty little comments to help like check people and keep them at a distance from me. Like I still, it's like my favorite go-to to this day. So it's been an evolution. Um, I think about it a couple ways. One is what I call brilliant resilience, a really natural resource I had as a human. We all have our gifts. One of my natural resources was independence. I was always independent. It made sense to me to move out, right? It was just kind of in me. So I used that. I used that to survive. And that worked for me until it worked against me. When I realized that my independence was actually me disconnecting from other humans to a level where I was suffering, that became painful. Now it was an unhealthy coping mechanism. It was keeping me from being able to experience joy and connection. That's painful. And so I did make a real conscious effort when I was 18 to share. I just started singing. I was homeless. And I was like, F it. I'm going to share the most brutal songs, the most brutal poems, like... Nobody knew I stole. Nobody knew I was homeless. Like, I was just was like, here we go. Like, let's do this. And I was rewarded, luckily. I had two surfers in this coffee shop where I did this, and they cried, and I cried. And it was a rewarding experience. And, you know, for my career, I've been rewarded for being vulnerable. So I'm lucky, and it's a unique thing. I think being able to deal with fame just for me was like, if you fake how you are, they'll find out. And then it's this terrible fall from grace. Like, I'd rather just beat people to the punch. I'd rather tell people what I'm bad at, what I suck at, my flaws, because it made me feel a lot less pressure in the public eye and it made fame handleable or manageable to me. Um, But it's something that I think people learn in layers. There's still places I don't like to be seen. I don't let people see if it's something's real fresh. I'm protective of that. You know, I think we we learn these things in, in evolutional series. Fame is the ultimate emotional health challenge. I can't even fathom what fame does for a person. And we've seen so many thousands of examples of people who have fame far less than yours and be destroyed by it. How were you able to, in fact, use that fame to grow in emotional health and grow in mental health when so many people have challenges when it comes to what famous can do for a person from every perspective, from an ego perspective to a financial perspective, et cetera. When I got discovered, I was homeless. 
And I was just figuring out how to get happy. This year was so transformative of being homeless. I The skills I was developing, I was getting, I, I started to heal my agoraphobia, my panic attacks. I learned how to stop shoplifting. Even though I was homeless, I had really started to feel so empowered and so free inside my body that when record labels came, it almost was very frightening because, again, just like that kid that moved out at 15, you know, here I am, 18, with the kind of emotional baggage and trauma that I had, you know, God forbid I become famous. It's like every movie you've seen of every celebrity. I had a very big statistical chance of, well, being a statistic. And so, again, I had to come up with a strategy. Um, I didn't rush into it. I thought about it. I thought about turning it down. Um, I did. thought about what, yeah. And you I actually thought of turn turning record labels down. I did. I didn't think I could handle it. My my psychological footing was so fresh, so fragile that I didn't think I could withstand. And I knew the cost of not having good psychological footing. Nothing was worth it. And when you realize you can be happy homeless, what do you need in life? What did I really want? And, you know, so I really stopped and asked myself, I loved singing and I was ambitious. And of course, I wanted lots of things in my life, but not at any cost. And so I really had to stop and go, what, at what cost? What am I willing to pay? Meanwhile, there was a bidding war over me. Every label started coming down. I had one of the biggest bidding wars, I probably have the history of music. I, it was crazy. Every label outbidding the other one, racketing up this price. I was offered a million dollar signing bonus as a homeless kid. So I did a couple things. First, I went to the library, bought a book about how does the music business work? How are deals structured? What does an advance mean? What does a signing bonus mean? What does this mean? What's happening? And then the other thing is I gave myself a whole list of questions I had to answer. Like, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? What do I want? At what cost? What I realized was really valuable. Um, I realized that I could sign a record deal on one condition. And that condition was that my number one job would continue to be learning how to be a happy whole human, not a human full of holes. And my number two job would be to be a musician. And that under that, I had a subcategory. I wanted to be an artist more than I wanted to be famous. And what this did was give me North Stars to navigate and make decisions by because decisions are hierarchical. You know, life isn't all linear, but some things are. And I had to have a decision for make or process for making decisions. So knowing I would always put my emotional health first was non-negotiable. And I'm very proud to say I'm 48 and I've never, ever let that down. I oh, have done beautiful years off of my career. I've turned down massive opportunities because I didn't believe I could psychologically handle it. And it cost me a lot. It cost me fame. It cost me money, but it didn't cost me my sanity. I it would have cost you a lot more kid. had you it done that. It cost me that. a lot more. It really would have. Um, and it was unheard of at the time. There weren't mental health breaks or where mental health I don't think even existed yet. Um, so it was just like, ooh, Jewel took two years off at her height. It was shaming somehow, you know. <laughs> and then again, having that hierarchical decision of like, I want to be an artist. You know, sometimes it doesn't jive with fame. It also does jive with fame. It's just each case by case is, you know. You have to look at it individually. So I think those kinds of things are important. I don't think we ask ourselves, 
I had to have metrics around my happiness. How do I know when I'm happy? How do I know when I'm not? Like if you make a business, you have a business plan, you create resources, you make sure you have enough time. You'd never invest in a young startup CEO that didn't want to dedicate his life to it. Why don't we do that with our happiness? Why aren't we more practical and logical about what do you want? How do you know when you have it? What does it look like? How can you audit it? And so for me, that's what I spent a lot of my time doing was creating those metrics for myself. Amazing. So often people set goals and those goals go out the window or they aren't constantly revised in the, in the context of every major decision that one needs to make. And just having those goals top of mind at all times are just amazing. Speaking of goals, you have accomplished an amazing goal and what you're in the middle of the not alone challenge is truly extraordinary. I would love for you to share with our hundreds of thousands of listeners, um, a little more about the Not Alone Challenge. I've participated in it myself. Someone's going to be taking me out to lunch and I'm looking forward to it. Um, share a little bit more because what you build, it's actually, it's literally, it's a movement that you're building right now. Talk a little more about that, please. Thank you. And first of all, thank you for your participation. Um, if everybody listening doesn't know, he uh, donated six-month mentorship and a lunch. So an incredibly generous uh, thing to do for somebody. So incredible. Thank you. So hashtag not alone challenge was just developed to try and move beyond raising awareness around mental health to arming people with tools. 50% of the population that needs mental health tools don't have access to them. And that's not okay. You know, what do people do if they can't afford therapy? It's a really hard thing. And that's what we set out to solve in my youth foundation. I love therapy, but it's just not available to everybody. And are there tools and systems and curriculum that can help you get significant help with your mental health um, if you don't have access or if you fall through the cracks of traditional systems? And so those are the tools that as we start raising money. Um, yeah, so what what it is, I guess I should start from the beginning. Um, people like yourself would make a video um, on social media saying why mental health matters, what their auction item is, they nominate somebody else, and then people can bid on that auction item. And I think when we combine everybody that we've had participate, social media reach, it'll have been 1.2 billion media impressions. Stop it. Isn't that crazy? I know. It seems impossible. It's cool. It's been really, really neat, you know, and especially to get people from all walks of life, athletes, every socioeconomic, political background. This is something we all share. We all have to find practical tools to feel better. Yeah, what's beautiful about it is there's so many things that disunite our country and disunite people. Um, and ending the loneliness and helping people connect and and providing resources for so many people in need is something that unites everyone because it doesn't matter whether you're at the extreme right or extreme left progressive, there's pain everywhere. Yeah. I've heard a lot and read a lot about inner world. I know it's something that you're working on right now. I would love to help our listeners to understand additional resources to go to and, and what you're working on. Please share a little more about that. That'd be great. Thanks. Yeah. We just launched Inner World. It's a virtual reality mental health community. It works with Oculus goggles or without them. You can just do it on your laptop and it works fine. But basically it's a peer-to-peer -peer community where you can go to learn a lot of things I've been talking about today. You can learn anything from meditation to skills like when we have people with social anxiety, we teach a skill called solve ahead. And it's when you think of the worst case scenario, 
and then you solve, make a plan for it. And then you think of the best case scenario and you make a plan for that. And it really helps calm your anxiety. It lets you anchor into the fact that, okay, I know I have a plan in place should something go wrong on my whatever trip to the grocery store. Um, and so if people want to go there, we would really, yeah, we would love it. It is a for-profit. It's a subscription model, um, $200 a year, which, you know, for one therapy session, that's the same price. Um, and so we're just, we just launched. We're brand new and uh, we're really excited. You can go in there and test it for free and, and see what it's like and get into the community. As we said, we need to go where people are and technology is where people are. And we need to use that technology for good rather than for challenges that people oftentimes have. Is there an age group that do you think is the most vulnerable right now in your mind that you want to make sure that as much resources gets gets goes towards? Is it the post-college? Is it college? Is it high school? If you have to think about if you can impact one kind of age group, what age group would it be? Um, let's start with that. It's hard to say because when you look at the numbers, Suicidal ideation is up across every demographic. Um, it's at historic, unsustainable highs. Um, white, highly educated men, um, people of color, marginalized people, college kids, you know, what's happening on campuses is horrifying. And I think that's what we're finding and what my real passion and solving for is how can I create tools that work for every um, category, um, practical common sense tools that work, whether you're 14 or you're 80. Quick story about, you know, that I just heard literally yesterday about someone from meetup. Um, during when the pandemic hit, there were tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people. We have 60 million people that were on meetup that didn't have anywhere to go. They lived by themselves. Um, in fact, I just read that number of people that live by themselves is 25% of people live by themselves. In 1950, it was 1%. Hmm. So it's changed dramatically. And the risks during COVID of when people live by themselves is just so significant. And numerous people created meetup groups during the pandemic and kept them open 24-7. So that there was always a person that they could go to, that they could talk with, um, if they felt vulnerable, if they felt scared. And 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 we've had emails and social media posts of people who just said, you know, meetup, um, meetup saved their lives. And and it's something that that you know is just incredibly deeply important, you know, to me and and to our team. That's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing you guys are doing. Thank you. If you have a person who's struggling, and of course it depends on what they're struggling with, of course. But if you could tell them one thing, what would be the one message that you would you would want to share with them uh, that that can that could help them take that next step? Probably the idea of emotional impermanence. It's not forever. How you're feeling is intolerable. It is excruciating. If you had to feel this way for the rest of your life, it would be unmanageable. But for me, I really learned this lesson. I was really depressed. I was in Alaska. I was sitting on a cliff watching the tide go out. There are huge tides in Alaska, and it took six or seven hours. I was sitting here watching the tide go way out and come way back in. It was very slow, but I sat there long enough to watch that it indeed came back in. And I suddenly just looked around me and started laughing because the culmination of physics is change. Every single thing in the universe, whether on an atomic level or on a universal huge scale, changes. And so it was kind of funny that I was sitting there thinking I was the only thing in all the universe that wouldn't change, that my bad mood would be there forever. 
It's categorically untrue. It's actually scientifically impossible. And for me, I felt an odd hubris. What an odd, arrogant thing to think I alone and all the universe will not change. I realized, no, I'm part of nature and I can relax into that. It has to change. I don't know how. I don't know when, but it has to change because that's physics. And maybe I could help it change. Maybe also I could start to pitch in and get curious what things could help it change quicker. Do I have an influence over it? A lot of times we can. We can have a real influence over these moods and these miasms that come across us in our lives. And if you get curious, there are answers and there is change. And we've been working with suicidal kids for 21 years. We've never lost one. And more importantly, I've never seen a child not change. I've never seen without categorically every single child has come to me weeping with joy at some point. They never thought they would laugh again, much less weep with joy. And this is through the Children's Foundation. Just want to know. Yeah, it's called the Inspiring Children Foundation. You know, Derek Jeter said a line that I always think about, and it's don't let the highs get you too high and the lows get you too low. And I'm sure there's many songs with those lyrics in, them, in that as well. And I think for me, you talked about the lows not getting too low and that it will change, but also don't let the highs get you too high. Uh, and I yeah. think that's dangerous as well. And, and it's almost like, like I w- love what you said, which is almost taking an outer body experience, looking at that, perceiving when you're having that high and knowing that that's too will change. That too will change. And that's okay. And that's actually healthy and good. Yeah, you know, external results are a phenomenon of process. If you put your self-worth outside of you, it gets to go on a roller coaster ride because when you don't have a song that performs, now you don't have any self-worth. And then when you do have a song that performs, now you have worth. But all of that's outside of my control. That means I've given away my esteem. I've given away my power to know my worth independent of performative behavior. Very dangerous. So we really want to contemplate and think, who am I consistently, no matter how things are going? If I took away my job title, if I took away that I'm a parent, if I took away that I'm a musician, what am I? Who am I? What is my most essential self? And when you can get in touch with that, you're very dangerous in a good way because nobody can leverage you. You know your worth. You know your value. You know sometimes things work. Sometimes things don't work. But it doesn't make your value less intrinsic. Jewel, you know, a lot of studies on happiness have been done. and They found that one of the largest contributors towards happiness is exactly what you said, which is having an internal locus of control versus external locus of control. And the happiest people are ones that have an internal locus of control. The ones that that don't blame outside influences. It's therefore, therefore, why my life is bad, et cetera. Or I define myself by how many likes that I have in my, you know, Instagram feed or whatever, you know, how people tend to define themselves. So thank you for sharing that. That that really rings home for me and, and I hope for many of our listeners. I'll ask you one last question and then it is unfortunately a wrap, which is what do you ultimately want to be most remembered by? Uh, it's an internal posture for me personally. Um, I really want my life to be my best work of art. I don't want my art to be my best work of art. I hope I live artfully. And by that, I mean, I hope I parent artfully. And that means I have to gain skill and go to school and gain mastery and be thoughtful and artful in my parenting. I have to do that in my relationships. I have to do that in my art, you know, with songs or with business or anything I'm doing. I hope to do it artfully, but it has to be my whole life. 
There's a song I wrote on my first album called Painters, and it said, because uh, he's a painter and he's painting himself a beautiful world. So that would probably be what I want written. I was a painter and I was painting myself a beautiful world. I'm, I'm trying to create a world from the inside out that has been pleasing to me. Jewel, there is so much more paint left. It seems like there's almost infinite paint left and and infinite canvases that you're going to be painting and just an acceleration of everything you're doing. And I just wanted to thank you so much for being part of Keep Connected. Thank you for your friendship to meet up and thank you for all that you do, you know, in this entire world and for your, for your fans and people who should be your fans, not only for your music, but for who you are. So thank you. Well, thank you. And thanks for everything you're doing with Meetup. And I can't wait to integrate into the community further. It's incredible. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. You know, my team had told me that Jewel was going to be on the podcast. I was just in shock. And then I became very nervous. And I didn't know if I would be able to connect with a person of such notoriety and fame, someone who sold 30 million plus albums. She is someone who is so incredibly down to earth, who has gone through tremendous pain, who has tremendous fame and understands that both can be fleeting. And it's about knowing who you are and driving happiness out of who you are as a person, not being defined by those around you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, remember to subscribe, leave a review. And remember, let's keep connected because life is better together. Thank you, Jewel. David Siegel here, your favorite podcast host. I have something important to share. Check out my new book, Decide and Conquer, to really get to know my story at Meetup. You know, the hardest thing about community leadership is making tough decisions when the stakes are high. And I'll tell you, they were never higher than when Meetup was owned and sold by WeWork. In my new book, Decide and Conquer, I'll walk you through a counterintuitive framework for decision-making, and the epic journey of Meetup's surprising survival. Good leaders deliberate, great leaders decide. Order my book today by visiting decideandconquerbook.com or anywhere books are sold. Think you'll like it.